welcome to episode 93 of the I Wanna Party with Bob Bobcast. This episode is the Tim Powers episode, which features an interview with the author, Tim Powers. There are no ads in this one, no songs, no music. It's basically just an interview with Mr. Tim Powers. Now, if you're not familiar with Tim Powers, let me clue you in on him a little bit. Maybe you've seen the Disney Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Yeah, the fourth movie in that series of movies on Stranger Tides was loosely based on Tim Powers' 1987 book of the same title. Very loosely. There's no Johnny Depp, Jack Sparrow character in the On Stranger Tides book kind of staggering around saying, oh, savvy in that book. Thank God that is <laughs> the book On Stranger Tides was my introduction to Tim Powers. And ever since I've been a huge, huge fan of his writing, I would call Tim Powers my favorite author of all time. That's coming from someone who reads constantly too, usually about a book a week. So and on Stranger Tides, what a book, what a story. It's such a great story. It involves voodoo, Blackbeard, a search for the Fountain of Youth. There's a wizard trying to resurrect his dead wife, pirates, all kinds of great stuff. And I'm not kidding when I say this. I have read On Stranger Tides, I think nearly 20 times in my life, in the course of my life. That book is that good. I would also say that the other 16 or so novels written by Tim Powers since 1976 are just as good as On Stranger Tides, especially my favorite book of his, Expiration Date. That book is really interesting. It kind of set me on my course of interest in the paranormal. No kidding. Expiration Date, very simply put, is basically about a kid named Cootie who becomes more or less possessed by the ghost of Thomas Edison and the adventures that ensue from the time that Thomas Edison kind of becomes one with Cootie. Very interesting book. In fact, so much more so than just that very brief description I just gave. So in that book, Tim Powers more or less lays out what ghosts are in some ways. From a fictional perspective, for sure, I am going to say, even though what happens with ghosts and things like that in expiration date, even though it is fiction, the explanation that Tim Powers gives about what a ghost is, that's kind of been something that has really been on my mind and seems like almost the most logical explanation of what a ghost is or what kind of paranormal activity is for a long, long time. It's really good stuff. So yeah, listen for that part in the interview. It's really great. Tim Powers is, like I was alluding to a little bit ago, without a doubt, my favorite author of all time. That's something I feel like I should say about this episode, because it's really important to me. Doing an interview with Tim has absolutely been a goal of mine since I started this podcast. No kidding. I would even say that this interview with Tim Powers was one of the main reasons I started a podcast in the first place. There's not too much information about Tim Powers out there. I wanted to know more about him. I kind of wanted to know what he thinks about certain things kind of the process about how he comes up with ideas for his stories, etc. So here we are, an episode with Tim Powers. I really hope you enjoy it because I definitely enjoy talking to Mr. Powers, that's for sure. Before we get to the interview, though, let's do the... Beer of the Episode. 
Yes, the beer of the episode for the Tim Powers episode is the Digital Castaway IPA by none other than Plan 9 Alehouse. This IPA is brewed with Simcoe, Citra, and Sabro hops and is a very crisp, clean, and slightly bitter IPA. Let's try this one. Hang on just a sec. It's good. Yeah, it is slightly bitter. A little bit. A tiny bit. Fruity. Fruity like any IPA worth its salt is. It's a good, delicious beer. The bitterness is absolutely not overwhelming. Not much of an aftertaste at all. A very delicious beer. Yes, this... I would not mind being stranded on a deserted island with the digital castaway beer. Indeed. Just so you know, you can get this fine beer and many other fine beers from Plan 9 Alehouse by visiting Plan 9 Alehouse at 155 East Grand Avenue in lovely downtown Escondido, California. You can reach Plan 9 Alehouse by phone at 760-489-8817 or visit them on the web at www.plan9alehouse.com. Check them out, Plan 9 Alehouse. They have the finest beers in all of Beardom. Well, let's get to the interview Here it is, my interview with the author, Tim Powers. Stay tuned. Well, thanks for talking. I really, I really appreciate it. Oh, uh, happy to do it. All right. Well, first of all, I'd like to get some background information on you, a little bit of your history Wikipedia tells me you moved to California in 1959 when you were somewhere around seven years old from New York. Exactly right. Yeah, I was born in Buffalo. Okay, and you've been here in Southern California? Ever since. Yeah, I'm not a native, but I've been living in California longer than most natives. One thing I noticed, a lot of your stories take place in Southern California, especially around Los Angeles. Uh, Well, uh, for one thing, of course, Los Angeles is very accessible for me, but also uh, I I think Los Angeles is my favorite city. I figure anybody can fall in love with San Francisco or New Orleans in a weekend. Los Angeles, you got to kind of look around the corners a little bit, you know, go up into the hills and look around. I think it's... Its history is uh, is really fascinating, largely because it is so uh, unevident, you know, kind of obscured under uh, kind of flashy contemporary, you know, you think Hollywood and everything. Sure. You have to pull the curtains back a little bit to kind of see what's yeah. behind it in some ways. Yeah. And even the Hollywood stuff, there's some great obscure history in all that and it's all in a fairly small compass uh you know i mean in north to san fernando valley south to maybe san pedro it's all in a kind of a fairly limited world geographically speaking it's a a small smaller area than you would think considering everything that's kind of packed into it in some ways yeah and somebody said sometime that at one point, they tilted the country so everything that was loose tumbled down into California. Uh, and certainly, California has been a focus for all kinds of weird 
from flying saucer nuts to weird end of the world cults to strange variations of religions. I mean, weird health utopias, uh, every kind of odd obsession found its way here. And for fiction, that's really useful because, you know, you don't have to make anything up. It uh, all the weirdness is already there. Sure, and it just takes you to kind of come in and and flesh it out, kind of fill it out in some ways. Yeah, in in effect, you take some weird cult or religion or flying saucer obsessed people or whatever it might be, and just say, "What if they were right?" And yeah, then then you've got an interesting situation going. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. What would you say? are some of your favorite aspects of living in Southern California, you know, specifically kind of where you live around San Bernardino? Obviously, certainly the weather, uh, even though it's supposed to rain tonight. I've always found the freeways, the fact of the freeways to be, uh, they sort of have an almost mystical air to them especially since the contrasting, uh, you know, regular streets are called surface streets. You think, okay, if they're the surface, what's, what's freeways deeper, higher. And I mean, you get on a freeway and if you miss your off ramp, you might wind up in Palm Springs or Santa Monica or San Diego. It's like a kind of magic gate, which if you work it wrong, you, you wind up way far from, what your destination, your intended destination was. Sure. And you touch on that in alternate routes, I think a little bit. Yeah. 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 Something about, uh, the way uh, there's sort of normal life going on, such as might've been in the 1940s, but you look up and there's this road somewhat further up in the sky with these vehicles rushing past, go back at night. They're still rushing past. And you think, where are they all going? Can they all be just mundane, you know, businessmen and, and, and merchants and stuff? Nah, there have to be, some of those vehicles have to be mysterious. You would think so, right? Like where, where are they going? Like when you're driving on the freeway at three in the morning through LA, right. there's five cars all around you. Where are they going? Well, Maybe the better question is, where are you going in some ways? Well, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, I remember coming home from a friend's place in Glendale once with Jim Blaylock, another fantasy writer, and a sort of Land Rover 1940s thing passed us in its own little cloud of dust with all kinds of shovels and gas cans belted to the side of it. And we just think, okay, that guy came through a time war. That guy <laughs> is not a citizen of the year we think it is. The now, right? He came. Right. <laughs> wow. Yeah, there is just something about freeways that encourages that kind of speculation. One thing I wanted to ask you about kind of where you live now, if you Wikipedia says you live in Muscoy, which is just right. just outside of San Bernardino. In the book 3 Days to Never was that town that that family lived in? Was that the town that you live in? Was that kind of your reference point for part of that? Yeah. That's what I thought. Okay, good. Point yeah. for me. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah. I believe I gave them this house 
Merritt, he and his daughter. I suspected, but didn't know. I looked at Google Google Maps, the where you can do the street view and everything. Yeah. And I started looking around, you know, just the town, just looking around the town of Muskoi going, okay, let me just look at it, what it looks like. And I go, oh my God, it, it looks just like what he was describing in three days it to is. never in some ways. Yeah, wow. it, is, it is a... It's a weird little neighborhood. It's unincorporated. There's no sidewalks or uh, streetlights. And it seems that every other house, the yard, everybody's yard is an acre. It was originally agricultural. And there's just all kind of cattle and goats. One time it was midnight and I realized I hadn't shut the front gate. So I walked down the driveway and shut the gate and locked it and went to bed. And it's in the morning, it turned out I had locked a horse in the yard. Oh, my. Wow. <laughs> yeah. My wife went out, you know, can we keep it? <laughs> <laughs> it did come to your house. So, I mean, you know, yeah, that's yeah. kind of, I don't know, squatter's rights or something like that, maybe. Who knows, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned Google Maps. I've found that Google Maps and YouTube, it almost feels like cheating. You can get such detailed, you know, vicarious experience of, of a place just sitting at your computer. There's one place in the desert uh, called Amboy, which used to be a major stopping point when Route 66 was the cross-country mainline. Uh, but then a newer freeway came in and Route 66 went stagnant and Amboy became virtually a ghost town. And we knew some Marines who were stationed out at 29 Palms in the desert. And they said that they were told, okay, while you're here, you don't go to the roadside bars. You don't pick up hitchhiking hippie girls. And as you value your life, you don't go to Amboy. Really? Yeah. They said, why is that? And they said, well, it's not, it's, it's all human sacrifice and devil worshiping. And my wife and I were going to drive out there for research. But I went online and a guy said the same thing. He had been a Marine stationed at 29 Palms, given that lecture, but he wanted to get to Salt Lake City as quick as possible. And he thought, who's going to know? It's noon. I got a full tank of gas. I got 15 rounds of ammunition and a handgun. Uh, why not? And he said, as he was driving through Amboy, which is just a row of tourist cabins and, uh, 1950s space age looking diner. And as he was scooting through, he saw a car stop diagonally across the lanes and a bunch of busted suitcases and clothing scattered on the pavement and two bodies sprawled there. And so he slowed down thinking I better help. But then he thought it looks staged. So he sped up and zipped around them. And as he moved on out into the desert, he looked in his rearview mirror and saw not only those two bodies stand up and look after him, but about 20 people from behind tumbleweeds and boulders stand up and look after him. Oh, my. (laughs) And so we decided we would not go there except with Google Maps. Oh, wow. (laughs) Because with Google Maps, you know, you can drop that little orange man down onto the street for street view. And my wife said, well, if you do that, a bunch of other orange men are going to appear and kill him. (laughs) But yeah, Southern California is just riddled with unsubstantiable but fascinating stories. 
Oh, uh, as a matter of fact, the the book I just finished, which I just turned in to Bain, is largely about the UFO subculture. Really? That's not something you've touched on too much before in the past. So, no, true. What always happens is I'll be reading some nonfiction, and something will just strike me as odd, and. And then if I keep reading and a second thing strikes me as odd, I think, well, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe something is going on here. You could hang a book on. And it occurred to me that every time UFOs are seen by like Navy flyers and all, they're going like Mach 10 and they change course instantly without slowing down. Right. And I thought, okay, they can't be physical objects. And never mind what would happen to passengers in a vehicle that did that. I don't think a vehicle can do that. So they are something besides physical objects. I mean, they have to be. I mean, even in real real life, they can't be actual metal spheres uh, behaving that way. Physics doesn't permit it. Sure, right, yeah. And so I also tied it in with crop circles. Oh, very cool. Very cool. That book's what, probably about a year out or so with the way things were kind of, I suppose. Yeah. It's usually you figure uh, a year in the pipeline. I've read almost all of your books except for the very first two. And then the very, oh, yeah. the very latest one, those are the only ones that I missed short stories included too. So oh, well, very good. Very good. The thing I wanted to tell you too, I meant to tell you this at the very beginning, the very first book of yours that I got, I, it was on stranger tides in 1987 and it was on display. And I would swear to this day, it was at a TGNY, but I think it was a crown <laughs> book. So I, I thought you might remember TGNY cause that was kind of the, that was the hot place to go before Walmart. I know that, and that would, stuff. So. Yeah, I, I've always wanted to see my books at like Costco, you know, implying that everybody walking by is going to pick up a copy. Right. I just I saw that cover and I said, "Wow!" You know, I was really into Disneyland kind of at the time, and I said, "Oh yeah, oh, yeah. this looks just like Pirates of the Caribbean." I'm going to get. I looked, read the back cover, just right up my alley, and then off I went, kind of thing. So that was probably the best cover I've ever had given that really maybe unless you're Stephen King or Neil Gaiman or George R. R. Martin, it's still true that the cover picture has a whole lot to do with whether people buy it or not. Sure does. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's one of the ways that I discover, but in fact, one of my new favorite authors that I've been reading, Nathan Ballingrud, it was the cover and the story on the cover that's that, got me sucked into him just by browsing, looking for something to read, you know? So, yeah. And that is always a matter of, well, it's not, the author has no say in it. You know, they'll send you a cover proof and you say, Oh, you're kind of expected to say, wow, that's great. Whether it is or not, they would say, we only asked to be polite. Uh, (laughs) It's like somebody says, how are you doing? You're supposed to say, fine. How are you? You're not supposed to say, "Oh, my back hurts." Oh, listen, tired. you got a yes. yeah, you got a half hour. I got. I'll tell you how, how I am. <laughs> so that that kind of leads me to the next question. The first two novels, "The Skies Discrowned," which they they renamed "Forsake the Sky" in 1986, 
Right. And then and, and Epitaph and Rust, those both were released or published in 1976. And that was the same year you got your BA in English literature from Cal State Fullerton. Is that is that yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to go on to grad school with the vague intention of being a, I suppose, an English lit professor somewhere. But when I sold those two books, I thought, hell with that. Ah. And I, I quit grad school and I quit my pizza parlor job and just uh, went into writing full time. And God knows how it would have worked out. I was living on about 2000 a year. But in fact, Laser Books went, what got shut down. So I found myself going back to the pizza parlor for my, get my old job back, but at least I never went back to grad school. Ah, okay. That had you been writing prior to, I mean, how long have you been writing for? Was it something you did kind of since you were a kid? Yeah. In 1967 magazine of fantasy and science fiction ran an editorial on how to submit stories. I was uh, 15 and so I immediately wrote a story, which really was just a retelling of a story in that same issue. I sent it off and I got a real rejection slip. Uh, in those days, FNSF, their rejection slips were printed on the backs of stripped off magazine covers. So it had a neat picture by Jack Gone on one side and a rejection note on the other side. And I was actually very pleased. I thought, wow. A real rejection. Sure. That's a big step. Hemingway got step. those. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Something tangible that shows, hey, I made the effort. I This is the start of my road in some ways. You know, you can use oh, that yeah. as a mile marker on the road, you know. Yeah. I, I've never understood beginning writers who say, oh, you know, I don't think I could stand, you know, a rejection. And I want to tell them, they don't come to your house. You know, are you the person who wrote this dumb crap? <laughs> <laughs> and I always tell them there's a finite number of rejections you'll get before you get a sale. And therefore every rejection you get reduces that number by one. Ah, sure. It was fortunate that laser books existed right then. It was published by, uh, Harlequin, the romance publishers. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah. They decided to see if science fiction could sell as well as romances did. So they hired Roger Elwood to be the editor and very fortunately hired Kelly Freeze to do the covers. The covers were the best part of those books. A friend of mine, KW Jeter sold a book to them and told me, you know, they got no backlog. They have very strict length requirements. They pay very poorly, send them something. And so I immediately did. Uh, in fact, I I was kind of daunted by the idea of writing a 60,000-word novel. I'd, I'd written short stories and got them rejected before that, but a novel seemed intimidating. But they only wanted three chapters and an outline, so uh, I was able to do that. And I wrote 10,000 words and showed it to Jeter, and luckily he told me, throw this in the trash. When... The story starts, start with the first incident of, of action, you know? I thought, gee, that seems awfully 
profligate. I think I had spent those 10,000 words just sort of what I would have said was introducing the characters. But fortunately, Jeter told me, no, you start the story when the story starts, when the in- incidents start. And, oh, okay. Huh. Hmm. I was afraid I'd use up my whole story before I got to 60,000 words, but it sure. turned out to have turned out to be fine. Wow. And then you're kind of off and running from there in some ways. Yeah. After, after laser, after Harlequin decided that science fiction did not sell nearly as well as romances. I think the problem was science fiction readers are picky. They like one sort of story or one author and not another author. And apparently romance readers just buy every romance, like buying a box of Cheerios. And so laser got folded. As I say, I went back to my pizza job, but I did not go back to grad school because I thought, no, damn it. I'm a pro writer. Look, I actually made money off books. They're in bookstores. I'm not going to go be a college professor. And so I kept sending, I had written one book that uh, before the whole laser picture folded and I was sending it around. And uh, finally, luckily a couple of years into that Lester Del Rey, I sent the book to him and he said, I'm not buying it, but I'm not exactly rejecting it either. If you take it back and make it 120,000 words instead of 60, cut out the year gap in the middle, don't have the hero die in the end, and a couple other things. He said, if you do all that, I might buy it. So I thought, well, that's better than anything else I got going. So So I spent about a year redoing the book, and fortunately Delray did buy it. That was the drawing of the dark. And that was uh, another step forward. I wrote another book for him and he said it was terrible. He said, it's no good. Give me back the advance money. I said, well, I spent it. It's gone. He says, then you owe me another book. I said, oh, okay. So I wrote another book. He goes, wow, this is even worse than the previous one. Where's that advance money? I said, let's, it's even more spent now than it was before. <laughs> All right. He says, then you owe me another book. I okay. So I wrote another book. And the first one he rejected was the Anubis Gates. The second was Dinner at Deviant's Palace. And finally, the third one was uh, on Stranger Tides. And I'd been selling the rejects to Ace Books. And luckily, by the time of on Stranger Tides, I got enough money. I was able to pay Delray back his long ago advance money. Oh, my gosh. So we stayed on friendly terms. Actually, I have to say, even though he rejected Anubis Gates, Dinner at Deviant's Palace, and On Stranger Tides, he, in a way, he was still the editor for them because he didn't just write back and say, this stinks, throw it in the trash. He always sent me a three or four page single space letter pointing out what he didn't like about it. Mm. And it always made perfect sense. I always thought, wow, good points. Yes. Boy, I'm going to rewrite it. And I would rewrite them to huge improvement based on his reasons for having rejected them. And I would say, you know, I rewrote it according to your suggestions and it's much better now. Would you like to see it again? No, I don't want to see it again. It stinks. I just thought I should tell you what's wrong with it. Oh my gosh. Wow. So he, he was actually, even after just buying 
the one book, he was actually a very valuable editor for the subsequent three. Sure, sure. Inadvertently, more or less. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he he really was one of the one of the great all time editors. I mean, it sounds like he really did you some favors in some ways, even though it may not have been the best thing at the time to happen. At least you definitely got something out of it in some ways. Oh yeah. In fact, the same thing was happening to Jim Blaylock. He sold two books to Del Rey and then Del Rey rejected everything afterwards. And Blaylock like me was able to sell the rejects to ACE books, probably improved through Del Rey's suggestions. Sure. And I remember at a convention one time, Blaylock and I ran into Del Rey and he said, ah, Blaylock and Powers, I want to congratulate you two on having found a publisher for your second-rate works. Wow! <laughs> but he he had these Coke bottle glasses and a bristling mustache, and he was always blinking with, like, his eyes looked real big behind the glasses. And you couldn't take offense. He, he, he so relished being, you know, the crotchety old editor that you almost had to applaud just his chutzpah in some ways or something. Sure. Sure. (laughs) You kind of go, Oh, thank thank you, Lester. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. The next question, it might seem a little silly. Do you enjoy writing? Do you, do you have a good time? Are you happy when you're writing? Would you say? I have to say that every morning I would rather do anything in the world except write. I think that is true of a lot of writers. Once I get into it, it's like getting in the shower on a cold morning. You know, once you're in it, it's okay. But yeah, I always, you know, I, I say, okay, sit down in front of the computer, turn the computer on, get into word, get into your file. And I always, I'll look around, I'll, I'll see an old paperback lying on the floor. And I think, well, that, that doesn't belong on the floor. I should put that, oh, it's an old Heinlein. Oh, it's, you know, Citizen of the Galaxy. That was real good. And I read the first page and I think, oh, man, this is a great story. But this is an obstacle to your proper work. You need to get rid of this paperback Heinlein book in order to get your work done. And I bet I could finish it in a day. Yeah, it's not that thick. Yeah, I I better read this Heinlein book and get it out of my way. (laughs) And of course, a half hour later, I think, no, come on, come on, get to work. What's the matter with you? So it's a little bit of a fight. Yeah, it is like that getting out of the bed and getting in the shower kind of situation. Once you're there, it's okay. But it takes, there's some fighting to get to that point. Yeah. And I've heard writers say that their best work is the one they're working on or the one in front of the next one after that. And they don't think all that highly of their past work. I'm the exact opposite. I never have any faith in whatever the project is looming in front of me. And I'm always very pleased with the old things. Of course, before long, the project in front of me becomes one of the old things. And then I think very highly of it, too. Wow, that's interesting. I've been playing music for a long time. And, you know, I mean, not that I'm good or anything like that. But just what you said is like songs. It's almost like Uh I don't like the song while I'm doing it, but I love to listen to the old ones. You know? Yeah. Well, the, while you're doing it, you're considering stuff, dismissing stuff, squinting at it sideways. There always comes a point when I'm halfway through any novel, when I'll stand back and look at it and think, Oh my God, this is no good at all. 
it's completely worthless from beginning to middle point where you are. You have wasted, you may as well have been building cathedrals out of toothpicks and Elmer's glue. And I have to remind myself, you always think this. It always looks completely hopeless at this point, this halfway point, and it's never correct. It's some kind of brain reflex. It has never been true. So continue. And I always think, well, it might be true this time. And I said, you always think that too. You always think that too. Shut up. Keep working. And then, of course, it passes and the, and the thing looks good to me again. But there's just that one speed bump that always hits you at that certain point where you do that. Yeah. And in fact, I think a fair amount of self-doubt is a valuable thing. Sure. Yeah, because otherwise you'd be delighted with your first drafts, you know, assume that it's completely perfect and unimprovable and which would which would not be true. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. There's an expression there somewhere, right, about something not being worth it if it's too easy or something like that. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I never want to let go of a book until as far as I can see, it's unimprovable. That doesn't mean that it is unimprovable, but it's sort of like planing a piece of wood perfectly flat. You know, you, you lay a ruler on it, you run your hand over it, and you think, okay, that is perfectly, perfectly flat. I'll, I'll send it off now. But then, of course, you get a letter from the editor saying, yeah, yeah, this is, this is good powers, but, but here's some improvements. Here's where you went wrong. In a, and after, after a day or two, I look at their letter and say, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, they got a point. Yes, that would be an improvement. Yeah, yeah, all right. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to send it off while I can still see areas sort of like sliding your hand over that piece of wood and you kind of keep thinking you find a little splinter there, which means uh, a lot of times I've missed deadlines. You know, the editor said, Powers, the book was due in September. I think, yeah, but, you know, wouldn't you rather have it good than on time? Which so far they've all been polite enough to say yes. That's good. Yeah. And there's no sense in rush, especially if you don't feel like it's ready. That's a hard thing to say, well, this is, I'm just going to send it off. No, you're really, that, that oh, was yeah. kind of the thing I think with you, your books are very well researched, very well fleshed out. The stories are very full of information. I mean, that was the other, another question kind of related is if you do your own research or not, because there's oh, a yeah. lot of detail in, in what you write, it seems to me. Yeah. In fact, I've sometimes said my system is for a writer who has no intrinsic imagination because I'll, I'll, I'll find some area that looks likely to have interesting settings and events and characters. And I'll think, well, such as pirates in the Caribbean or spies in the Middle East. And uh, so I'll read a bunch of nonfiction looking for things that are too cool not to use. Hmm. Like I remember once reading that Thomas Edison wrote a letter to Scientific American. This was shortly before he died saying that his next invention was going to be a telephone to talk to dead people with. And I thought that's kind of weird. And then I read that Edison's last breath was captured in a test tube 
Uh, and in fact, I've seen it. It's on display in a museum in Michigan. And uh, I said, okay, there's two weird things about Edison. Read up on Edison. So I read a bunch of biographies of him. And if you're doing research with the kind of paranoid squint that I adopt looking for elements of a story, you always find stuff. Edison turned out to be a gold mine of weird, unexplained things where the biographers just say, don't know why he did that. And I think I'll figure out why he did it. <laughs> like the throwing firecrackers at his kid's feet. In yeah. Expiration date. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he did that. And, and, uh, what made him climb a greased pole? You think, okay, why might it, given a supernatural situation, why might those things be a good idea? It's like with Blackbeard, the pirate, if why did he tie little burning fuses in his beard? Why did he mix rum with gunpowder and set it on fire and drink it? Why did he shoot his best friend's leg off? Why did he take his ship up the Ocracoke Inlet when everybody warned him that the Royal Navy was coming and would block him in? Right, right. And I think, well, okay. In the real world, the answer is because he was nuts. Right. Um, yes. <laughs> but see if you can't think up a supernatural backstory in which those behaviors were actually very shrewd moves. Right. So really, like I don't approach research with a story already in mind. I go to research as a blank slate, just looking for neat stuff that could be part of a story and if you research enough, you always find some. Sure. So in a way, my plotting task is connect the dots, make the dots, make a picture. Yeah. A little bit bigger than the picture that the reality of it was as well. Right. It's like much, and, 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 you know, obviously very much more entertaining in some ways too, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Reality is always disappointing. It can be, it can be. Yes. Yeah. And I do make it a rule that I can't, violate reality. If I'm writing about Edison or Einstein or Blackbeard or Kim Philby or somebody, I will weave an imaginary explanation around their stories, but I don't let myself change any of their story. I don't let myself rearrange days of the calendar or, you know, uh, violate established history. It is said that's your that's one of your personal rules about writing and stories. Yeah. Do that. Yeah. I don't want people to say, even though sometimes they do, Oh, this is an alternate history. I think, no, it's not. No, it's not. Right. It's exactly accurate. It's, there's some extra details that never made the history books, <laughs> but it's exactly accurate. Right. Yeah. You can't ever say that about your books. I mean, as far as the real characters, it's just, you fill in the blanks where we don't know exactly what happened. Exactly. In <laughs> yeah. In one book, Stress of Her Regard, I dealt with Byron and Keats and Shelley, and it was a challenge to <laughs> weave one story around all three of their lives and use it to explain some anomalies and enigmas in their lives. Sure. Oh, there always comes a point when I have cooked up my imaginary explanation for history as it is in the books. 
And after I've cooked up my explanation, I'll stumble across some last minute research book and it appear it has something in it that appears to confirm my fictional explanation. And I think, uh oh, you're not making this up. You've stumbled on the actual explanation. <laughs> the the, tr- the real secret history yeah. of all these things. Yeah, that only happens real late at night. <laughs> sure, right. <laughs> I remember, though, Philip K. Dick, in 1971, his house was weirdly robbed and vandalized with all evidences of it having been kind of a paramilitary hit. Uh, He wasn't at home when it happened, but it wasn't just a robbery or vandalism. There was some weird details that implied an organization, a purpose. He was discussing it with a cop some years later, and the cop said, I think probably you write science fiction, kind of paranoid science fiction. I think what probably happened is in a book you wrote, you accidentally it touched on something that happened to have a real world counterpart. He said, how many books have you written? And Phil said like 40. And the guy said, then you'll never know which one it was wow. that accidentally brushed against reality. Holy cow. Wow. <laughs> oh, that came from a policeman too. Wow. <laughs> the next question, TV and film and your writing. I was shocked to see the Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, you know, very much, very loosely based on, but it made, it made me think, you know, why haven't we seen more adaptations of your work on TV and in film? Well, I don't know. (laughs) Last call. It looks like was, might've been optioned in 2000 for a movie or a series or something. Yeah, they get optioned. Uh, they flicker on and off pretty regularly, getting optioned. And sometimes the person renews the option even two or three times, which is very gracious of them. Uh, I've probably had a dozen options over the years. Oh, no kidding. Okay. Uh, you know, which is to say over 40 years. <laughs> right. Uh, it's, yeah, not yeah. Like, it's not like a yearly event. But God bless them. Uh, you know, I, I, I certainly applaud their efforts. I do think miniseries would be the way to go. For most of your books, I would definitely agree. Yeah, there's too much going on. And if you tried to pack that into a two, two and a half hour long movie, I think it would just miss way too much key plot points and, and things. Yeah. You know? And luckily these days, miniseries is, are just the fashion they're happening everywhere yeah that it's the hot ticket it seems like that's i've just ordered the dvds of queen's gambit which i'm told is great fantastic absolutely wonderful and i don't even like chess but i do now and that happened to a lot of people so (laughs) yeah yeah well it got me back into it (laughs) there's an online thing i've been playing a robot Oh, there you go. (laughs) And I also think of the uh, BBC Pride and Prejudice with Colin Firth and Jennifer Ely was a very effective rendition of the novel, which a movie could not have done. Right now, there are three of my books optioned. I don't think I'm at liberty to say which one. Oh, sure. But, you know, I figured, well, three odds are better than one. And then I tell myself, yeah, it's like having three lottery tickets you bought at 7-Eleven. 
They are always a long shot. Oh, it's a long shot, sure. So there's nothing planned right now, really, that you know of 100% or that you could even really say. No, just options. You know, they, they buy 18 months. And you really, I mean, it's not like they give you progress reports. You hope at the end of the 18 months they'll renew. Uh, I remember with Disney, they right after the first pirate movie came out, they got in touch with my agent and said, if this becomes a series and we do four on number four, we'd like to buy Powers's book. And so for the next two movies, my wife and I saw them first day to add our little votes to them being successful, but they kept renewing the option. And finally they said, yeah, we're going to make movie with Powers' book and title, more title than book, and got a script, actors committed. And then it came time to renew the option, and they did. And I thought, well, why wouldn't they just buy it? The option payment is not deductible from the purchase price. Why would they throw away the option payment and not simply buy the book? And my agent explained to me that the option payment to them is just lunch money. And and they don't actually purchase the property till like the day before they start filming in case some star falls under a bus or something. Just to make sure that they didn't buy it for nothing, basically. And we own this thing now that we can't actually use. Yeah. But luckily they they did come through and buy it, Uh, which I'm grateful they did because really... All they used from my book was Blackbeard and the Fountain of Youth. That was it, pretty much, yeah. And oceans and ships. <laughs> but they could <laughs> they could very plausibly have said, Powers, you didn't invent Blackbeard. You didn't invent the Fountain of Youth. So I think in a way it was good of them to say, well, yeah, okay, it is from your book. We'll buy it. They could have exactly said, oh, well, yeah. we want to tell yeah. this story okay, well, this guy, Tim Powers, wrote a story just like what we're talking about. Well, yeah, well, who cares? Blackbeard's not his character. The Fountain of Youth, oh, yeah. he didn't invent that. How many, how many books have been written about Blackbeard or Fountain of Youth? Sure. That's a great point. That's something I never thought of in that case. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I, I'm very glad they uh, came through on that. That's great. And I just watched that movie the other night, kind of in preparation for this, thinking, because I saw it you know, when it came out, very excited, going, oh, cool. Great. You know, excellent. And then I and I saw it and I go, well, they didn't really do much from the book. And then I watched it again the other night thinking, well, let me just go back and see it again. And yeah, it was still there weren't many elements from the book in the movie. Right. And it's right. not that it's a bad movie in any way, shape, or form, but you know, it is what it is. It's a Disney Pirates of the Caribbean movie. So I never feel that somebody making a movie has any overwhelming duty to follow the original book very closely. They're such different forms. A movie made precisely accurate from a book would probably not be a good movie. Right. Yeah. And I always think of something James Cain said, you know, double indemnity and postman always rings twice. And somebody asked him, what do you think of what Hollywood has done to your books? And he waved at the bookcase and said, they haven't done anything to them. Look, there they are. They're right here. (laughs) Yeah. That would be my attitude. That's a good attitude to have. I mean, it's, I've always read the story about Stephen King and uh, Stanley Kubrick and The Shining and how he hates that version of The Shining and how everything that he's sold to a movie studio, they've kind of bastardized in some way. And, 
you know, it's like your attitude is definitely great. Just, you know, there's my book. That's what they did. This is what I did, you know? Yeah, I, I, for one thing, I don't think most authors would have the standing to have much of an effect. I mean, J.K. Rowling, yeah, she was able to pick one of a dozen clamoring movie studios on the basis of them letting her participate. Uh, I don't think most writers would get that kind of accommodation. Sure. Because she was already massively famous at the time before they even made the movie. Yeah. But we did get to go to the premiere. We got to go one evening in fact and watch them filming and got to chat with Johnny Depp about Hunter Thompson and Roscoe Arbuckle. Oh, wow. Briefly. And then we, they were all very busy. So somebody drove us back to our car and they stopped at universal. They were actually filming at universal studios. I thought that was just an amusement park these days, but I guess they really do film there. And it was middle of the night. And as she was driving us down the hill, we stopped at the psycho house, you know, Bates motel and got to walk up and stand on the porch, which tourists don't generally get to no, do. Oh, not at all. Right. So that was our, Evening, watching a movie be made. And oh, then, that's great! Yeah, at least you got. I mean, yeah. you got some. You had some cool memories out of it. It sounds like yeah. for sure. So, we're talking about expiration date a little bit ago. One of the things oh, yeah. that really fascinates me, and that's kind of a lot of the subject matter of this podcast, is ghosts and the paranormal because it's something oh, yeah. that fascinates me. In expiration date, I mean, you know, obviously it's a fiction you laid out kind of what ghosts are in a way in that book to where it, if I remember right, it kind of like cast off shelves of who we used to be that are yes. brought on by the, the, the stress of dying. And the, you know, you also allude to there being birth ghosts when you're born, you also throw off these ghosts because of the stress yeah. of being born. It's sort of like a phase change. When you go through a phase change, it's stressful and, yeah, it kind of fragments you. That was it. It kind of coming in or going out. It's kind of right, yeah. <laughs> now. Where did that idea come from? I mean, is that the idea of what ghosts are? Is that something that you think actually exists? Is this you know when you when you hear about ghosts or the paranormal? Was that like say your belief in what that might be in the real world? Did that transfer to the fiction to the book? If there are real ghosts my bet would be they would like be like that i i got the original notion from uh gk chesterton he said once if you're being haunted by the ghost of your uncle george your uncle george doesn't know anything about it he's in heaven or hell the ghost is a kind of semi-animate fragment of him semi-sentient kind of an idiot wandering around with half memories of what its life was, not realizing it's dead. Or I remember in Hide Me Among the Graves, I said ghosts are ashamed of being dead. Yes, yes, but they yes. always seem to be stupid. I mean, when you read about mediums uh, with Ouija boards and stuff, which I would not touch or allow one in the house, the messages they get are always just imbecilic gibberish almost like just rambling things yeah yeah i i read a book once of sonnets by percy shelley written after his death through a medium 
and he had just lost all his skill. Um, <laughs> so no, I don't, I, I don't think, I, I don't think such things really exist. Although being Catholic, it's not absolutely ruled out. Are you practicing Catholic? Are you practicing to this day kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, practicing. I mean, it's a little difficult to get to church these days. Certainly, absolutely, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm not a dissenting or recovering Catholic. Gotcha, okay. Which is kind of fun, because everybody else is. It sure, it sure does seem that way, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a mildly amiable philosophy. And you think, well, that's nice, but no. I think people like the philosophy of a religion, Christianity in specific, but aren't comfortable with admitting the possibility or reality of the supernatural. I think a lot of Catholics would say, no, it's, it's a valuable religion, you know, the Ten Commandments, you know, and of course, you know, those miracles realistically speaking, didn't actually occur. I mean, he didn't actually come back from the dead. Come on. And I said, no, he did. They did occur. He did come back from the dead. Ha. So there. (laughs) There you go. So ghosts, so you don't, you don't believe that ghosts exist necessarily? No, no. Uh, every now and then you hear some anecdotal story, you know. Oh, well, my aunt, you know, there was a ghost in her attic. And I think, yeah, that's cool. Uh, your aunt was probably crazy. Or there's a raccoon up there or something. Uh, like yeah, that. it was a raccoon, right. So I'm, I'm skeptical. Skeptical, But at sir. the same time, I would never have a Ouija board in the house. At one time for last call, in fact, I had to buy a deck of the Rider Waite tarot cards because they got the neat pictures on every card. Sure, yeah. But I would never shuffle them. <laughs> <laughs> so you hold on to a little bit of superstition in some ways, too, just like... Yeah, I'm not even sure I'd call it superstition. Caution. I teach one class a week at a high school of the arts in Orange County, or now it's Zoom, but a classroom is the basement of an old church with no desks or chairs, just pillows the students sprawl on. And I gave them an assignment and they drift everywhere, choir loft and everywhere. And I went into one room and a couple of them jumped up guilty looking. And I said, what are you guys doing? And they said, nothing, Mr. Powers. And I saw they had turned a box over and written the alphabet in an arch on it and were sliding a piece of quartz crystal around. Ah. I said, what the hell? And they said, it's okay, Mr. Powers. It's, it's the good kind of crystal. I said, well, tell that to the demon you just conjured up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical but cautious. That's, very, that's a great policy, I think, to be totally <laughs> honest. I think that's a fantastic policy. All right. Well, before we get to the, to the last question, there is a question that I have always wanted to ask you after reading several of your novels the characters and the main protagonists say the main character in a lot of your books, you beat them up pretty bad by the end of the book. It's true. So I always wanted to ask you, why do you do that to those poor characters? You know, well, there, there is a reason there was a Schwarzenegger movie. I think it was called commando. And at one point he runs across a football field sized lawn 
while about three guys with machine guns are shooting at him and not one bullet hits him. Yeah. And then he gets into an airplane and as it's taking off, he somehow jumps out the back hatch and falls a hundred feet into a swamp, but he's okay. Unscathed. And I realized as I was watching it, I thought this is make believe. Uh, you're watching a, a pretend story. And I thought, I don't want to write make believe pretend stories. Uh, I want to write stories that the reader for the duration invests a kind of vicarious credulity in. And so I want to have my characters get banged up so that my readers will think, geez, these guys better be careful. They could get killed out there. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this stuff bites. It's not a toothless world that you're right, that you're right. writing about. You're right. Yeah, one wrong step and your hand gets cut off or something. <laughs> so yeah, I kind of beat him up to make the reader think, "Geez, this is a rough situation." It's sort of like in Die Hard, if you remember. Sure. Bruce Willis goes through ordeals that would have killed him eight times. But they save credulity because by the end, he looks so beat to bit. He looks beat to heck. Yes, he does. <laughs> yeah. yeah, his feet are bleeding all over. He's, he's right. a wreck. And, and that helps credulity. You think, wow, this is real serious. Where this guy could get killed doing this stuff. And you don't realize that logically, he should have got killed half a dozen times already. He already should have been dead, right. right. Yeah. But they beat him up so bad, you buy it. Right. And it generates a sort of sympathy for the character in some yes, ways, too. Yes. Oh, and it, it makes That's... you bond with the character that much more, too, now that I'm thinking about it, you know? Yeah, poor devil. Good Lord, man. They don't give him a minute's peace here. Right. What What was his name? <laughs> Mr. Michael Crawford in Stress of Her Regard. I thought, oh, my oh, God, yes. you're going to kill this guy before the end of the book, before there's a happy ending here. Baker you know? gets shot off, and he's got a bullet. They got to pull out of his leg with pliers and right, right. And his poor girlfriend loses an eye. <laughs> she, wow, yeah, you really dragged her through some tough spots I know it. there. <laughs> I know they have a terrible time. They do, they do. But <laughs> the story is that much better for all their suffering. I would say so. Yeah. <laughs> well, fantastic. Yeah. My last question really is, what's coming up for you? I know the sequel for Alternate Roots came out in March of 2020, but the paperback version is coming out in a couple weeks. Yeah, I just got copies of it. Yeah, the, the following one is, again, a sequel called Fallen Skies, and it has the characters Vickery and Castine again, and they get involved with Navy intelligence operation which is seeking to establish some kind of contact with whatever UFOs are. Ah, okay. So that book you were talking about back at the kind of beginning, that's the, the culmination of that trilogy, the, the final book, yeah. in the, the Vickery Castine trilogy kind of thing. Yeah, I think it will be the final. I mean, they could go on, but I think I'll give them a break for a few years. There you go. There you go. It'd be fun to get back to them. Have you ever had the thought of going back to anything else? I mean, I know you did a short story for Anubis Gates that came out, you know, much later after the book was, the original book was released. Yeah, in those cases, there were two of those that Subterranean Press did. Uh, In those cases, the editor said, Powers, would you be willing to write a short story 
peripheral to, and it was Gates. Sort of the way Jack Vance did with writing stories peripheral to his book, The Dying Earth. And I think, you know, okay, sure. It would be fun to go back and, well, for example, last call, expiration date, and earthquake weather. Those all happened in specific years, and the characters were specific ages. Right. You know, they had birth dates. It wasn't like some series characters who are always 35 years old. And so it would be fun to calculate, how old are they today? What might they get up to today? Hmm. You'd have to interest a publisher. Sure. And, you know, the world is so much of a different place now. Strangely so than it was when, when those books, when earthquake weather, came oh, yeah. out, you know, it was like kind yeah. of the dawning of the age of the internet, you know? And yes. And anytime I write a book set here and now, I worry about the year it'll take, well, a year to write it. And then a year in the pipeline before it gets published, it won't be here and now anymore by the time it's published. For example, fallen skies, I was going to make it set, in, you know, whatever time it is I'm writing it. But then COVID came along and I didn't want to write a book about everybody social distancing and wearing masks and not able to go to restaurants. So I said it in January of 2020 before the hammer came down. Before the hammer came down. Sure. Yeah. It would be a drag to write our story set here and now with everybody standing six feet apart and wearing masks. <laughs> oh, right. Sure. What? And you know, the, the, <laughs> the terrible thing would be, it's like, we're already living it. We don't need to read about it as well. in our, what we're, where we're going to escape our reality, you know, actually that's it. I read the newest Michael Connolly book, quality of innocence or something. And it ends with COVID having arrived and they can't get toilet paper at the store. Oh my gosh. I thought, eh, I want escapism. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, what I write is, is what I write and what I like to read is escapism, which sometimes people criticize. You know, well, it's escapist literature. But I like something J.R. Tolkien once said when people said Lord of the Rings was escapism. He said, well, sure. What, what group of people most disapprove of escape? Jailers. So I'll stick with my escapism. So it would be fun to write about, say, the characters in the Last Call trilogy at whatever age they'd be now. I'd love to see that. That was a fantastic trilogy. Yeah, the, the thing is, you know, you'd have to find a publisher and they would say, but this is a sequel to that other publisher's book. That could cause some confusion and consternation <laughs> amongst them, I can imagine. So, yeah. So, okay, maybe about a year and we should have fallen skies. And then as time goes by, hopefully we'll keep seeing more and more. So, I mean, no plans on stopping writing from you in the future. Oh, no. Oh, great. No, I don't know how I'd justify using up oxygen that somebody else could use. (laughs) Well, I appreciate it. I'm glad you're sticking (laughs) with it, honestly. So, and I know there are a lot of other people that are too. So, well, good. Bravo. That's all I have to say to that, you know. Well, very good. Well, it's been fun. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Great talking to you, Tim. I really appreciate it. Excellent. Well, it has been fun. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Tim. Thank you very much. Well, there you go. The Tim Powers episode is now almost complete. I feel like I had a great talk with Tim. I really hope you did enjoy it. I will post links to where you can get Tim Powers books on this episode's page of the Bobcast website. 
Check them out. Like I said at the very beginning, Tim Powers is absolutely my favorite author. I think if you give his books a shot, if you give his novels and stories a shot, you will definitely fall in love with his writing, just like I did. If you like kind of historical fiction, sci-fi, fantasy, a little bit of a horror element in some of his books with a twist, you will definitely enjoy the works of Tim Powers. That's kind of him in a nutshell. His stories are great. And by the way, reading is very good for your brain, too. Did you know that? I hope you do, because reading is something that you should do more of. And I always tell myself I need to do more reading as well. So, and I read a lot. On that note, I want to say thank you so much. A huge thank you to Tim Powers for taking the time to talk with me. I really, really appreciate it. And thank you for listening. Don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review the Bobcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please consider joining my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash I want to party with Bob. It does help me out if you do that, and you get exclusive and bonus content, including videos. Now, I have some videos that should be uploaded on that Patreon page by the time this episode is out. Well, thanks again so much for listening. That's going to do it for this episode.